This evening I want to explore uh, how we deepen our insight practice on the basis of having done this period of concentration practice. And I want to really follow from what Susie explored last night, the kind of instruction she gave in the morning, and how uh, many of us have practiced. I don't know if my own meetings with people were an indication, but about half of the people I saw were continuing all day today with the samadhi practice. And about half were uh, bringing an insight practice. A lot of them continuing at the same time with some samadhi practice, maybe a third and two thirds or half and half. And most of the people, I think almost everyone I talked to who was doing samadhi practice today was going to open up to insight practice tomorrow. And so um, hopefully the talk can be a guide both for our practice here, but also uh, our practice as we continue at home and in future retreats. So we've worked uh, so far, had some instructions both for concentration practice and insight practice. And interestingly, we often don't really get to deeper practice of either of them. It's interesting, right? That we sometimes stay uh, with the concentration without doing something like what we've done. It's harder to go deeper. And there's some similarities with insight practice that some, I'll try to give some pointers to how we might take that uh, more deeply as well. And uh, the two practices are very interrelated. Uh, Achan Cha, the great uh, Thai teacher, who was a teacher of uh, Jack Kornfield, Achan Sameto, and others. I had the uh, privilege of studying with him for a period of time, meeting him in the late 1970s. And, um, well, we, we could do a whole talk on him. But he, he once said that, uh, uh, concentration and insight practice are two ends of the same stick. That they're related, it's more a matter of where you focus or what you bring out. And we'll, we, we'll see some ways that that is, is true. So we've seen, I think, uh, some of the ways that samadhi practice or concentration practice can benefit insight practice, particularly if you've done it today, that the, the uh, steadiness and subtleness of attention makes a huge difference when you're tracking experience, tracking thoughts, when one's opening up. Uh, the temporary suppression of the hindrances means that we can more readily be non-reactive in our insight practice and stay with things and not be so much uh, liking, disliking, grasping and pushing away whatever comes up. We'll, we can, we'll tend to do that, that less. Uh, with deeper concentration, we can more readily uh, notice thoughts uh, sooner, more quickly after they arise. And some of you have reported being at that place in concentration practice where you can see thoughts uh, appearing almost in seed-like form, where they appear in the mind almost as little burps <laughs> that, you know, they just go whoop. And, and yet one can know, oh, that might have developed into a five-minute-long financial reflections discussion, <laughs> right? And it's, it's fascinating. You can, you can, can notice these little things and they, they don't actually elaborate because of the level of concentration. And similarly, one can notice uh, thoughts before they elaborate very much, near the beginning, closer to the beginning. We also with concentration can often develop a greater sense of inner self-sufficiency. I think I mentioned that in passing in, the, in my first talk, that really is connected with a kind of equanimity. We, we have an increasing sense that uh, our 
the capacities of our mind as it awakens can handle more and more, can handle more and more experiences. And concentration um, practice supports us in that, to have that more that sense of uh, the potentials of deep inwardness and the way that it can, um, we can know uh, that it can um, hold a lot and that we have inner resources that are there that will not necessarily be swept away or knocked away and concentration practice helps with that. And as we've mentioned, the Buddha was very clear that uh, without concentration, we can't get to deeper levels of insight. This is a passage from, from the Buddha. Without the peace of concentration, without attaining to calm, without one-pointedness, that one shall enter and abide in mind emancipation, in insight emancipation, that cannot be. So he was really saying this is important and that we can't go to those deeper insights. And yet they're both necessary. That uh, there are problems if we just have concentration practice and don't have insight practice. You know, that it's the uh, insight practice that is, that is freeing ultimately. That the hindrances again are temporarily suppressed it's the insight practice that uproots them or that gradually uproots them so that uh, whatever patterns of conditioning or, or habitual patterns can with insight practice be uh, cleaned up as it were, resolved. That doesn't happen with concentration practice. And so one of the dangers of those with uh, good concentration abilities is uh, those sort of people can fool themselves, right? And one can be very, very peaceful. And I, I in my own practice, I think, had that danger because I had good concentration abilities and yet there was a lot of stuff, particularly, you know, early on in my practice that I um, kind of got suppressed by concentration. So it can be linked with what we sometimes call spiritual bypassing. Do you know that term? which is um, using spiritual practices, for example, meditation, uh, almost as a reason not to deal with important psychological or developmental issues. Yeah, it's one way to say it briefly. The, the phrase was coined by John Wellwood, a psychologist, and um, a friend of mine uh, developed a whole play based on the concept of spiritual bypassing <laughs> it was called Zen Boyfriends. <laughs> and you can look it up on the web. And, and it, was, it was based on her, her dating experiences with supposedly spiritual men. <laughs> and, you know, I, I know some of the people she dated and they questioned her account, but... <laughs> anyway, but the... But uh, that can happen. That can happen not just with concentration practice, but with you know, spiritual self-image and so forth. So I think many, many of us know that. And, and yet the concentration was necessary, but in a way not sufficient. And again, the story of the Buddha that I started, that Sally brought out, really... Uh, pointed to the way that uh, the Buddha's experiences with very deep concentration practice for him were not enough. He didn't have a sense that they went to the depths of things in terms of being free, being liberated. And so, in a way, the, uh, his own explorations, uh, and particularly on the night of his awakening, he was really exploring the nature of um, dukkha, usually translated as suffering, and its causes, and went into depths in a way that really opened up some of the structure of what we call insight practice. 
And so the particular blend of practice that I think is really the Buddha's innovation involves this combination of concentration practice, which he, in a way, uh, inherited from his earlier teachers and then molded in certain ways, the integration of that and what we call insight practice. And so both are really seen as necessary. Philip has a nice phrase in terms of the transition between uh, concentration practice and insight practice. He says, because we know that the insight practice is what really frees us, we're willing, we're willing to trade sukha for dukkha. <laughs> we're willing to move into our sometimes more ordinary minds, our habitual minds, because we know that we have to look at that, but we do so with the uh, power, with the increased power from our concentration practice. So just a few further words about um, insight practice. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that we've learned in the concentration practice to uh, balance what we've, what I, what I called in my earlier talk, active effort or proactive effort and relaxation. And there's really a similar balance in insight practice. So if we know that in concentration practice, it actually helps us with some of the subtleties of insight practice, that there are ways that with insight practice, we need to be proactive. We need to connect with the object, notice it. We may use labeling. We may have a set of labels that help us to stay present, that notice, okay, anger, planning, you know, remembering, fantasizing, joy, whatever. And that takes a certain amount of active effort to be with the object, to track it. Um, the process of investigation, uh, Dhammavichaya that Susie talked about yesterday, is in a way an active process. It's really looking. You know, it's looking deeply, more experientially, but sometimes guided by words. Let me look at that. Or what's it feel like in the body? What's the, what's, the, what's the experience in the mind? And so forth. We may sometimes use words, but only in a guiding way. Not, a, not, not as Susie said, not to figure things out, but to look more deeply. And that's one of the active dimensions. And of course, we need the energy, the diligence. Again, one of the uh, activating fa uh, factors of, of the seven factors of awakening. We need those for insight practice, for mindfulness practice. And yet we also have aspects of what we might call more receptive or relaxed uh, effort with our insight practice. That, you know, when we connect with the object, much like the breath, we need to let it be there. We don't try to control it. We let the body sensations be there. We let the thought move as it will, or the emotions. We, we can... Uh, really be open to what's, uh, what we're experiencing without trying to control it. Uh, we can also engage in the practice of choiceless awareness, which Susie mentioned, which is, has uh, these receptive elements as well. And I'm thinking that there are really two main forms of choiceless awareness. I think the, the term choiceless awareness comes from Krishnamurti. That's, that's, uh, that. So not actually from the Buddha, but many, many things are quite parallel. But I think the term comes from that. And there really are two main forms, I think. One is when we have a kind of an anchor in the breath, but then we let ourselves go to whatever is predominant without making a choice about what should be predominant. We just see what's predominant, we go there. That's our more ordinary form of choiceless awareness. And there's also a form of choiceless awareness that is based more on greater stability of mind and, and more of the uh, concentration being there, more, more capacity of concentration. And that would be the kind where we actually, as Susie was mentioning, where we don't have an anchor. We have a steady awareness and we track whatever is predominant without an anchor. It takes quite a bit of stability to do that can be amazing. 
You know, it really can help us to experience a sense of uh, the flow of experience without a self, without a, you know, just the, you know, thought happening, sensation, sound, just coming like that. It opens us up to some of the deeper levels of insight. And so that's the second. Uh, a colleague, Gil Fronsdell, has a nice way of talking about this active and receptive uh, dimensions of mindfulness. He says, it's like um, being in a canoe. A little bit. So he has his, I have my kayaking <laughs> image. He has his canoe image. Could be a kayak as well. And uh, he says, there's paddling. You have to paddle some. But then you, have to, then you also float sometimes. You let go of the paddle and you just let there be floating. And their mindfulness has both aspects, paddling and floating. So more active and receptive. And of course, eventually, the, uh, as we know, the concentration can move towards that effortless effort where it's just occurring. And the mindfulness can, can as well. And just one more aspect about, about um, the nature of insight practice. It's important also to bring in the spirit of the heart and metta. And uh, I'll just mention a wonderful way to talk about uh, mindfulness that, that comes from our colleague Sylvia Borstein. And she's, she has a wonderful way of pointing. She says, may I meet this moment fully May I meet this moment as a friend. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet this moment as a friend. So we can also bring in the heart, really, in our mindfulness practice. So as we deepen in uh, concentration and start to then turn to insight practice, we... um, we can generally see more clearly the habitual thinking is not there so much. And we can start to really open up to a kind of seeing which can free. And I like the phrase, that's the name of a book by the British uh, teacher, uh, Robert Bea. He has a book called Seeing That Frees, which is really a way of talking about insight practice. That it's a kind of seeing which has the potential to liberate us, to free us, which is the purpose, right? That's the purpose of why we're here. It's not just to relax or to gain a little self-knowledge, although those occur, but the purpose is really to free us. And you may have wondered, in insight practice, what do we have insights into? Anyone wondered that? (laughs) It's a good question. And we, we know we have all sorts of insights. We can have personal insights. Um, one of my first insights in starting insight meditation uh, was that I planned a lot. That was important, right? I would sit there, you know, in, out. It was actually, I was at a time when I um, was just starting meditation and I wasn't sure what country I was going to live in. I had just come from a year in Germany and I wasn't sure whether I was going to go back. I was a student. And I sat there saying, in, out, Germany, United States, Germany, United States, what should I do? You know. And so, and I, I could see also that I was in other contexts, I was just planning a life. So that was an important insight. That's a kind of, we have personal insights into our patterns, our habits, and so forth. And we can sometimes have insights into unresolved issues. That's, that's also important. We can see the way different aspects of our experience are. We can say, we can see, oh, we can hang out with anger and see it in a uh, way we've never seen it before. We can be with uh, elements of our emotions or, again, uh, types of thinking, bodily experiences, and see them in a way, uh, like Achan Semedo says, oh, anger is like this. This is the nature, or fear is like this. And that's, that's one of the fruits. There's also a more traditional pointer to deeper types of insights. And so there's a passage uh, from the Buddha where he says, um, practitioners, 
Develop concentration. A practitioner who is concentrated understands things as they really are. And what does one understand as it really is? And then he goes on to say, one understands impermanence. One understands dukkha, usually translated as suffering. One understands anatta, usually understood as not-self. That's the usual translation. And so I want to really talk about that, the, these three types of insights for the rest of the evening and as a way of pointing us towards deeper insight practice. And then uh, tomorrow in the morning instructions, I'm going to bring in some instructions, particularly for working with impermanence. You know, if we had a longer retreat, we could actually work with all three. And I've, I've actually developed and given a seven-day retreat just on those three, which is wonderful. So we could take, you know, several days with each. It's a, it's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful way to practice. Um, so I'll, I'll work with, the, with those three. Um, Sally talked about the three being characterized by things or what, not permanent, not perfect, and not personal, right? And um, Wes Nisker has a nice one-liner, actually a few-liner, that he talks about the three, uh, not in the same order. He talks about uh, dukkha first, and then impermanence, and then not self. He says, life is hard. It'll put you through the changes, but don't take it personally. <laughs> so those are the, you, did you catch the three? Right, so... Um, and these, these are called by, by different names. Uh, the, sometimes they're called the three characteristics uh, of phenomena or of existence. And I liked, I'm following the lead of uh, Robert Bea. He likes to talk about them, and I, I resonate with this. He talks about them less as sort of characteristics of objects and more as ways of seeing that free. So seeing more closely into impermanence. He talks about them as the three ways of seeing that liberate. And that's the, I like that language. You know, we see, we focus and look more deeply into impermanence and it, we have insights. Same thing with looking into dukkha or looking into anatta. So for each of the three, I want to talk some about uh, how we understand them in general, some sense of how they're supported by concentration practice, and, um, and then some ways to practice them. So I'll mention some ways of practicing, but we'll only, in a guided way, work with impermanence for reasons of time. And we'll also see how they're very, very closely related. They intertwine in many ways, and I'll try to bring that out as well. So impermanence. And I should also say that I'm just going to give a beginning overview that uh, we could have uh, one or more evenings on each of these. I'm going to take like 10 or 12 minutes on each, so a little bit of an overview, but also pointing to the practice. So um, anyone who's read the text of the Buddha knows that impermanence is really a crucial area. The fact that things change, the fact that things arise, the fact that things cease, the fact that beings arise and cease. And the, the last words, supposedly, of the Buddha were, all things are impermanent, permanent. all component things are impermanent. Strive on with diligence. Note that there is impermanence. Keep your practice going. And there was a, a time when the 16th Karmapa, a great Tibetan teacher, who I also, I also got to meet. Uh, he died about 1980. He went to the U.S. Congress, and, you know, the Congress people, not having so much time for practice, but they, they wanted him to be brief and said, could you explain Buddhism in a nutshell? His answer was, everything changes. That's where he went. To impermanence. There's something very similar with Suzuki Roshi. He was uh, once asked, uh, what's the entire message of Buddha? And he also said, everything changes. 
Very, very interesting. Some of you know the Diamond Sutra. This is what you should think of this fleeting world. Like a drop of dew, or like a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning, in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And the, the reasons for looking at the impermanence of things is not to become grim or to become pessimistic. There are a few reasons why it's valuable to attend to impermanence in, 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 a, in a few different ways. Um, the major one is that we tend to think things are permanent and we hang on to things. We hang on to possessions. You know, I'm noticing that, you know, having lived to the age I am now, I've accumulated things. And when I say, yeah, it'd be really nice to have half of my possessions, not easy. And that's the beginning of it, right? It's not, it's not the most profound level of uh, letting go, right? And so, um, so the Buddha says, if we would perceive impermanence accurately, there would be no grasping, ignorance, or self-centeredness. We would be liberated and not cling. And so the major reason looking at impermanence is to let go more, to see clearly and let go. It also can give an urgency to practice, particularly when we reflect on um, death and the reality of death. And it can lead us to say what's important. It's one of the benefits of, a, of one kind of impermanence practice. It also can really take us into deeper insight when we, when we work with it more experientially. And maybe lastly, uh, impermanence practice and attending to impermanence can really um, deepen compassion. You know, I think there was a text, let's see if I remember this, from uh, a Zen teacher, uh, Robert Aitken, who had a very interesting book. I think it was about Raven talking to Bear. And, he, and what Raven said to Bear one day was, the essence of the Dharma is things are changing and we don't have much time. Something like that. Again, we can take that in a grim way. It can also be, uh, what, realistic. That can really say, what's important for me, given the way things, things are. There are two main ways to practice with impermanence. One is to practice with what we might call gross impermanence. And the other is, you know, the one we'll focus on more is with moment-to-moment -moment experiential impermanence and change. And the, the first kind can have us um, working with uh, just reflecting. It could be for five or 10 minutes a day, reflect on change. Reflect on change, on the things, fact that things arise and pass to reflect on our own change, and just in a very ordinary way. You know, we can reflect that the seasons change, you know, that this tree will be there for a certain amount of time and then it will end, that human beings are born and they die, that you know, countries rise and fall and so forth. And just to reflect on that, I did once for two years, 10 minutes a day of reflection like that, very helpful, very ordinary but something can have some of the benefits that I mentioned can occur. The moment-to-moment, -moment, uh, the moment-to-moment -moment practice is what we'll emphasize, and that is, again, where concentration can really help us. What we've done so far is that we can notice more easily the uh, arising of phenomena, they're staying and they're passing away. And we can do that in a very ordinary way. And we'll practice tomorrow morning. So we could practice, for example, just to be with body sensations. You can even try it right now. Maybe just focus on either some part of your body or your whole body and notice how things are changing. And maybe how a sensation, oh, there's a new sensation. Or that arose, or that's ending, or you know, and so forth. And we can do that with body sensations. We could do that with all the senses. We could work with sounds. I can ring the bell, hear the arising, the staying, and then the passing away. Very ordinary practice, 
one does that for a sustained time, something sinks in. can really learn from that. And again, to be able to follow that closely uh, takes a certain stability of mind. So we need the work we've done, the, the concentration practice. You know, you know, one of the main reasons that the concentration practice helps is that we uh, are more able to cut through the conceptualizing that so often occurs. One of the reasons we don't see impermanence is that we live in a highly conceptually mediated world. You know, and ours now may be the most in history, right? Even not just being conceptually mediated, but virtual, <laughs> right? And again, not to say that's bad or wrong, but it has its um, benefits and problems, right? One of the things is that we're just in this conceptualizing mind so often and we have a taste here of being out of that uh, to a significant extent. And of course we don't see impermanence to a large extent because we conceptualize objects. We look outside and we say tree and we live in this, we take the tree as real and we don't so much tune into the tree on a more experiential level. And with impermanence practice, we can do that more and we can really be without the, um, <clears throat> the concepts <clears throat> structuring things so much. Of course, this is a benefit in all of our practice. The this is where the combination of concentration insight makes a difference. When they've done research on the brain, they find that the um, concentration practice activates the, um, the ACC part of the brain. I think it's the interior cingulate cortex. And mindfulness practice deactivates the PCC, which is the posterior cingulate cortex. Guess what? Which is where the language center is and the conceptualizing. So we learn how to be with experience without so much conceptualization. Put them together, we can actually see very deeply, almost to... You know, almost like we, in our meditation, we almost uh, reverse the, uh, at least temporarily, we reverse the process of learning to live in a conceptual world that started for us when we were very young, right? The psychologist William James says that we live, that children, before they learn concepts, live in a blooming, buzzing confusion, right? Which, you know, um, has its good points and some limits. <laughs> right? And so we, we, can, we can open up in that way. And as a kind of a segue to talk about dukkha, one of the things we notice when we notice increasingly the flow of phenomena, the flow of phenomena, how things arise, stay for a while, pass, you know, our sensations, sounds, tastes, you know, do this at a meal. Watch, you know, contemplate impermanence for breakfast tomorrow. Very interesting, right? And um, we can contemplate that. What we'll notice when we contemplate the flow is that some parts of the flow are pleasant. We like them and we will tend to grasp. Some parts of the flow are unpleasant. We will uh, not like them, tend to push them away. And a good large chunk of the flow, maybe the vast majority, are neutral to us and we don't pay attention, <laughs> right? And so that, that can, we can start to get a sense of how we relate to this impermanent flow um, as we look more deeply. And so again, I'll guide us in that practice uh, tomorrow morning. Very simple, not hard to do, and really valuable when you stay with it. It's a way, again, a way of deepening insight practice, perhaps for some of us in ways that we haven't done in a sustained way before. We can do something very similar with... Um, uh, with dukkha. And there, there, there's a lot we could say about dukkha and a lot of different ways to translate it. And so I'm going to be really brief. Again, we could have a longer talk on, on dukkha. We remember that the Buddha said that the core of my teaching is dukkha and the end of dukkha. Right? So, and of course, dukkha figures centrally in the Four Noble Truths, right? Um, 
And it, again, in the, in the teachings, uh, dukkha appears in many ways. There are a lot of different ways the Buddha talks about dukkha. I'm going to really focus on one main way that we look at dukkha. And again, dukkha is usually translated as suffering. Sometimes I think Tanasara Bhikkhu translates it as stress. Other people translate it as unreliability or unsatisfactoriness, which is really emphasizing the fact that nothing in that impermanent flow will give lasting satisfaction. And that, that it's, uh, so I like to translate dukkha, it's not really literal, but I like to translate it as reactivity. That tendency to push away or grab hold. In other words, resistance to experience. And there, there's a, a core teaching that may be my favorite teaching that brings this out pretty clearly. And I think it, it points to some of the ways that we can practice and look into dukkha. And that's the teaching called the teaching of the two arrows, which is a um, very concise teaching. And the text is like just a few pages. Uh, but it's, it's a teaching where the Buddha uh, really illuminates uh, one of the core meanings of dukkha. And in a way that I think for me is the most important aspect of dukkha for, for our practice and for deepening insight. So I'll give you a little bit of this teaching. It goes like this. The Buddha was talking to a group of practitioners and said, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. What differentiates a, a non-practitioner from a practitioner? Any answers? Some of you know this. Already. But... but uh, um, and I should say that a, uh, a non-practitioner includes us when we're not practicing, just to be clear. <laughs> and so um, uh, the practitioners did not answer, so he answered his own question, which was a common pedagogical strategy that he had. And he said, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. And he was particularly in the text talking about what's physically unpleasant. I'm going to generalize and say, there are multiple types of unpleasant experiences. So we can have unpleasant experiences in the body, of course. We get ill, we get injured, we have backs that aren't doing as we told them to do at the beginning of the sitting, and so forth. You know, and we, we um, all sorts of other ways there can be physically unpleasant experiences. And we can also have emotionally unpleasant experiences difficult interactions with people, self-judgment, and so forth, right? Fear, the whole run of, of difficult emotional experiences, uh, difficult experiences socially, we can be treated unfairly or unjustly, and so forth. So there's a whole range of experiences that we could call unpleasant. And the Buddha talked about these as like being shot by the first arrow. When we have unpleasant experiences, it's as if we're shot by an arrow. And this is um, present for everyone. So practitioners and non-practitioners alike, everyone experiences that. The Buddha himself, later in his life, had a bad back at times and had headaches. Right? So just so you're clear, full awakening. <laughs> full awakening doesn't take care of everything. Okay, so, um, and then, but he said that the crux of practice, and this is really, is that a non-practitioner will tend to react to the presence of the unpleasant as if that would help get rid of it. And he called that the second arrow. And so, physically, we may... Um, you know, we have unpleasant sensations. We may judge ourselves here at the retreat. I should have done more yoga before this retreat. Then my back wouldn't be as it is. Anyone had that thought? <laughs> Some version of it, right? Or what? Um, you know, uh, I ate too much at lunch. Right? And we see how the physical is edging into the mental, emotional, right? You know, that we can, I won't even ask for a show of hands about anyone who's had self-judgment, right? So we can judge ourselves, we can, we can physically react or tense. A lot of some forms of chronic pain is tensing 
around pain. And so the first medical application of mindfulness by John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical School was with people with chronic pain. Some doctors say as much as 80% of chronic pain is the reaction to the original stimulus. So if you can teach people how to minimize that, it's huge, right? That's the second arrow. So he's essentially teaching people not to shoot the second arrow. And, and it's one of the core learnings. And of course, we interpersonally, we can shoot the second arrow a lot. Someone says something mean to me, right away. And so the core of the teaching is learning not to shoot the second arrow. And I think what's important here is that we could say, you know, we, it depends how we use our language. The first arrow is the unpleasant, we could call it pain. If we have a really clear definition, we could say that the second arrow is suffering. But I like reactivity because in English, pain and suffering are often used synonymously. And when people use suffering in Dharma talks, I wonder if, if they're making the distinction with pain. Because the teaching of the two arrows says pain isn't the issue, it's what you do with it. Right? The unpleasant of any kind isn't the problem, it's what you do with it. And can you learn not to shoot the second arrow? And so, in our practice, we can, we can look at practice in a few different ways. We can really watch that tendency to grasp, to shoot the second arrow, to be reactive in some way, because the reactivity is essentially the grasping and the pushing away. Again, one of the ways that I, I like reactivity as a translation, it can really point to two ways of reactivity, both the grasping and the pushing away. And so we can study that. One of the ways that we practice is we really set our radar for reactivity, even subtle reactivity. Notice yourself on the food line. Notice reactivity when it comes up. Heaven forbid another retreatant does something that mildly miffs you. I won't ask for a show of hands, but that happens, right? And okay, and, and instead of, as soon as you notice it, say, oh, Time for deeper insight practice around reactivity. That's how to, how to work with it. You know, you can really set your radar. I, I once, I think for a week, just had my radar for any moment of reactivity. You can look at it. You can really see a lot. See a lot about your habits. You know, and we want to really become experts and connoisseurs of our own bad habits. It's important. <laughs> And uh, another way to practice with uh, looking at reactivity is actually to uh, go a step or two before the reactivity occurs and really tune in when there's something significantly pleasant or significantly unpleasant. Some of you know the teachings on dependent origination point to how when there's ignorance and habitual energy, we will go very quickly from the presence of the pleasant to grasping and when the, we'll go very quickly from the presence of the unpleasant to pushing away. And so if we tune in to when there's the pleasant or the unpleasant, this can really be a prelude to really noticing when reactivity occurs. There's a, a cartoon which brings this out. Uh, one of, there's a, a young meditator saying, today I will live in the moment. Unless the moment is unpleasant, in which case, I will eat a cookie. <laughs> so, that practitioner may not have heard the equivalent of this talk and said, unless the moment is unpleasant, in which case I will do reactivity practice. So, that's, that's another way to, uh, to work with that. Um, and... We could also, I'll give you a third way, is, is really a, a version of the uh, fourth foundation of mindfulness. It's to um, work with the Four Noble Truths. And you could say, you could almost say, okay, there's, there's the unpleasant here now. Or there, there, actually there's suffering, which really means more that there's the second arrow has been shot. And then you can say, is there grasping? It's actually one of the first practices I ever had. I was given by Joseph Goldstein, 
in my first year of practice, and he said, here's a practice for your daily life, for your meditation. He says, if there's suffering, where's the grasping? And you could also say, if there's, you know, if there's, um, if there's grasping, or if, yeah, uh, if there's grasping, um, or if there, you know, if there's, if there's something really strongly pleasant, is there grasping, or is there, if there's something unpleasant, also where's the pushing away, which is sort of the, the sort of um, two sides of the same thing, and so that, uh, so here we would say something like, there's suffering. Let's say I'm, I'm in distress. Let's say, is there some kind of reactivity, grasping, pushing away? Second noble truth. Third, um, there's the possibility of freedom of not grasping, of not being reactive. And then fourth noble truth, what helps me to maybe let go of the reactivity? You know? And so you can actually apply, use the four noble truths as a guide whenever reactivity occurs. That's another way to practice. Okay, um, how are we doing? The last one, not self. Doing okay, I had a little timetable here because this is... This is um, covering territory, okay? And um, doing okay. Of course, what would it matter if I went over? <laughs> it would matter to some of you. <laughs> okay. Um, Okay, so the last one is anatta, usually translated as not-self, sometimes translated as no-self. You know, and most of the scholars I've consulted translated as not-self. And in, in um, the original language, the A before something is very similar to English words like atypical or amoral. It basically means not. And it's, you know, because, uh, in, you know, Pali and Sanskrit words are part of an Indo-European language. I mentioned the other night, there are some common roots, which is, which is nice when they occur. And um, so this is, of the three, um, the most conceptually confusing. And so I'm gonna to try to be very, very practical in pointing to how to practice with this. But I'll mention a few ways that it's confusing without going too much further. This is one of my favorites. Um, this is from the vast trove of internet uh, Jewish Buddhist humor. Okay. The Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says, there's no self. So maybe we're off the hook. <laughs> Anyways, there... I, I could actually talk for 20 minutes about the multiple reasons or confusions about this. And I'll, I'll just mention a few of them. Um, you know, a lot of spiritual language, we talk about the self with a capital S, we talk about the true person, even in Buddhist uh, terminology, you, um, <clears throat> uh, a um, very well, I think an art, one of the, I don't know if this is exactly right, but one, a very developed practitioner is sometimes called a maha-atta, which more or less means a big self, <laughs> which is the same term used for Gandhi, mahatma, right? And so and that's sometimes used in Buddhist context. Uh, uh, the stream-enterer, one of the stages of development, is called a big person. So it could get confusing, right? And then you have also have passages. There's a famous passage where the Buddha was asked by a wandering yogi named Vachagata, is there a self? He stayed silent. Is there no self? He stayed silent. And then he was asked by Ananda, why did you stay silent? It's, you know, he's, he, the either answer would have been confusing for the person. And so, so I didn't answer. And you know, in a similar way, somewhat similar way, Achan Cha says, the teachings about self are not true. The teachings about not-self are not true as well. Okay, you ready for some practical guidance? <laughs> okay, so, and this, this comes from my teaching experience. I found that it's actually helpful in uh, exploring in our insight practice in a deeper way, anatta, 
by uh, emphasizing two aspects of experience in a very practical way. The first is learning ways, and I, I'll use the metaphor of, of thinning the self and seeing where the self appears thickly. It's a metaphor which I first heard from uh, two teachers of concentration practice. Some of you have probably studied with them, uh, Tina Rasmussen and Stephen Snyder. And they used the metaphor in a somewhat different way, but I, I heard it from them and something resonated and I found it useful for exploring anatta. And so, first we open to a thinning of the self. We learn to experience without there being so much of, of a self there. And uh, this can happen in very ordinary experience when we're in something like what the uh, uh, Hungarian psychologist Csikszentmihalyi calls being in the flow. And we can learn to be more in the flow and it occurs naturally, you know, even when we're washing dishes, we're taking a walk, especially with artistic or musical abilities and sports, being in the zone. It's like we're in the flow. There's a lack of self-consciousness. There's a lack of self-image. There's a full engagement with experience. And that, that's a kind of ordinary version of anatta that's accessible to many of us. And it's a nice, it's a nice doorway because that's something you, we can experience quite often. Probably in a lot of our work, when we're really fully there, they're qualities of anatta. They're qualities of that, of that thinned out self. And we can also um, work with that in a meditative way. And I think, you know, from my understanding, the main way that the Buddha taught anatta was by working with our own experience with the model of the aggregates that Susie mentioned, which is really pointing to the constituents of experience like form or, or bodily experience, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Um, he, he mentioned perception, uh, kind of what we would call thoughts and emotions, sankara, and then consciousness. And he, he basically was setting up a way, can I just be with the flow of experience and notice the constituents of experience without self-image, without reactivity, without um, self-consciousness, and when we practice like that, which is the ordinary way that we practice our mindfulness and insight practice, we thin out the self. And we have that experience I was mentioning earlier in terms of impermanence, where we have that sense of flow. And that can be a very uh, crucial way to practice with, um, uh, to practice to explore anatta. And again, I'll be, I'm going to be brief with this. I could say, say a lot more, but we're looking for these experiences where some of the usual ways that we uh, have that strong sense of self are not there. And a lot of meditation opens us up in that way. And then there's a second way of practicing, sort of complementary, where we particularly look at and even investigate manifestations of what I would call a thick sense of self. And so we look out for the thick sense of self when it appears. And what's, what, what are the manifestations of a thick sense of self? There are many. There's, uh, we, you know, reactivity is a manifestation of a thick sense of self. I want this. I don't want this. I don't like this. And again, we don't say it's right or wrong, we, we, but we study it. What's the nature of reactivity? What's there? What's there in the body? What's there? What's the narrative? We look at self-image when it comes up. You know, if we have... Uh, a deepening of concentration, we notice the mental commentary, you know, that says, ah, I knew I could do it, I'm really good. <laughs> okay. yeah. we, often, we often have the fantasy of having a method of having uh, microphones attached to people's consciousness that would broadcast. <laughs> yeah. And we would hear, but we know, we know that occurs, that the, there's there's the commentary, there's the self-judgment is a, is a form of the thick self. We have, we can have ways we get attached. We have what we call Vipassana romances and Vipassana vendettas. You know what those are? That's where, where someone who you haven't met is the perfect life partner for you. <laughs> and you don't just notice it once. I won't ask for a show of hands. <laughs> 
or the opposite is Vipassana vendettas, where someone is clearly... <laughs> a problem. <laughs> so we look for these ways that the self is thick. It could be in the striving or the some way that we're tensing, wanting this, self-consciousness, repetitive thinking, and there also are you know there also are more uh, personally based and socially based forms of a thick self, some of which are unconscious. You know, a lot of our thick self is more unconscious. So we may, we may have something from our past. It may be trauma or difficult childhood experiences that could be uh, really generating a thick sense of self. And it's very important to say that, you know, the approach to the thick sense of self isn't just to let go of it, but sometimes it's calling out for healing and transformation really a crucial point. You know, that uh, sometimes it's appropriate to notice the thick self and let go of it. And in some cases, it's particularly when there's something, some significant past wounds, personal, maybe related to social conditioning, gender, race, all sorts of things, that we, we want to work with it in a different way. So you can see that the, uh, you know, the working with the thick self in various manifestations is a, really a lifetime work because there are more obvious manifestations and there are more subtle manifestations of that thick self. So we can, I think, the, I think that's the pointer I wanted to have. Those are two main ways of deepening insight practice around uh, exploring anatta. To uh, be more with the flow of experience. Again, our ordinary practice points in that direction. And then to uh, and then to uh, notice the thick self. And this, for me, is a very practical way of going deeper with our understanding in these two ways. So um, I think I'll, I'll, I'll rest there and um, maybe, maybe make uh, one comment and then just have a few, a few um, short readings to close. Uh, one is, as I was speaking, in terms of this deepening of insight practice, you probably could see how the three of these are related. And again, concentration helps us see that, but that the three are deeply related because if we can really be with impermanence, with that flow, um, at times we're there without reactivity and without a strong sense of self, and we see what gets in the way of just being with the impermanent flow. It's the reactivity, it's the strong sense of self, right? Those are two major, and of course those two are connected, reactivity and the strong sense of self. And so as we work with these three um, ways of deepening practice, we start to see how interrelated they are. And that we may have times where we can be with that flow of experience and notice, oh, Oh, just a, blur, uh, a blip of reactivity. Okay, notice that, then keep on going. Oh, yeah, when I look at the reactivity, oh yeah, there's a sense of self there. So these are deeply interrelated. And as we deepen in our practice, we start really seeing that more and more clearly. So three uh, passages to close, and three, three points to close. We need the balance of concentration practice and insight practice. They're both really crucial. From the Buddha, one who has gained mental calm but not the higher wisdom of insight should make an effort to establish the one and attain the other. One who has gained the higher wisdom of insight but not mental calm, in other words, concentration, should make an effort to establish the one and attain the other. One who has gained neither... <laughs> One who has gained neither should put forth intense desire, effort, exertion, impulse, unobstruction, mindfulness, and attention. <laughs> One who has gained both these should make an effort to establish these profitable states and further destroy the taints, which is sort of uh, Philip, I think, was... No, he didn't talk about that, but the taints are sort of a, verge, a version of talking about what... Um, are the root versions of greed, hatred, and delusion. Okay. And then second point in closing is that noticing these three aspects needs always to be connected with compassion. And 
the three ways of deepening insight are really about, um, in a sense, about wisdom practice. And there's that way that, that the wisdom practice always needs to be connected with compassion. That seeing our own experience and that of others and seeing how we all are here with this uh, challenging life experience, right? You know, when we all have uh, dukkha in our past, and we all have tendencies to dukkha, we all have habits that lead to suffering. We all have that. We all find it hard sometimes to be with things changing. And, and, um, and we all, in a way, have uh, a sense a constructed sense of self that in some ways isn't accurate. That was the best we, we can do. And so compassion is really a basis. And there's a beautiful uh, poem, kind of, a, kind of a poem from Gary Snyder. It's called After Bamayan. And Bamayan, remember, was the place in Afghanistan where the Taliban blew up the Buddhas in 2001, just a few months before 9-11. And he, uh, he talks about, he refers to a um, haiku by the Japanese haiku writer Isa, who wrote a very famous Isa, very famous haiku, sorry. <laughs> very famous haiku on the one year anniversary of the death of his firstborn child, right? And so he was really, yeah, impermanence but compassion also. And he uses the phrase, uh, this is a dewdrop world, which is a reference to that passage from the Diamond Sutra I read earlier. So Gary Snyder got a letter uh, from someone who said, why are you Buddhists all so concerned about uh, the destruction of the Buddhas at Bamayan? Isn't everything impermanent? Hmm. What's he gonna say? Right? And he, so he says, ah yes, impermanence. But this is never a reason to let compassion and focus slide or to pass off the sufferings of others because they are merely impermanent beings. The haiku goes, this is from Isa, the, this dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world and yet. And then Snyder adds, and yet is our perennial practice and maybe the root of the Dharma. And then the last one is from Achan Chah. This is about the way that he brings together concentration and insight practice. He uses the, me the metaphor of water flowing and also being still. Tranquility or concentration is stillness. Flowing is wisdom. In other words, we work with stillness with concentration practice, we work with what's moving in uh, insight practice. We practice meditation to calm the mind and make it still, then it can flow. In the beginning, we learn what still water is like and what flowing water is like. After practicing for a while, we will see how these two support each other. We have to make the mind calm like still water then it flows, both being still and flowing. Both being still and flowing. This is not easy to contemplate, both at the same time. We can understand that still water doesn't flow. We can understand that flowing water isn't still. But when we practice, we take hold of both of these. The mind of a true practitioner is like still water that flows, or flowing water that's still. Do you get a taste of that? Whatever takes place in the mind of a Dhamma practitioner is like flowing water that is still. To say that it is only flowing is not correct. Only still is not correct. But ordinarily, still water is still and flowing water flows. But when we have the experience of practice, our minds will be in this condition of flowing water that is still. This is something we've never seen. When we see flowing water, it is just flowing along. When we see still water, it doesn't flow. But water within our minds, it will really be like this, like flowing water that is still. In our Dhamma practice, we have samadhi or tranquility and wisdom mixed together.
then wherever we are, we sit in the mind and the mind is still and it flows. Still flowing water. With meditative stability and wisdom, tranquility and insight, it's like this. The Dhamma is like this. If you have reached the Dhamma, then at all times you will have this experience. Being tranquil and having wisdom flowing, yet still, still yet flowing. Making our minds like this, there is both tranquility, concentration, and wisdom. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit for a moment. Again, thank you for your kind attention. We'll continue with uh, some instructions of a simple nature tomorrow morning. So continue with your practice, about 25 minutes for walking and then come back for the chanting and sitting. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.